I know many of you guys know this, but I was born and raised for the first seven years of my life in uh, Kankakee, Illinois. And uh, some of you guys are familiar where Kankakee is, others of you aren't, so because Google Maps is awesome. Uh, here is Kankakee, Illinois, uh, right there highlighted in the red. You'll notice it's about an hour south of Chicago. And so uh, I affectionately say that I grew up uh, south of Chicago, uh, which I know many of you also know that I am a Cubs fan and uh, be growing up in Chicago that there were a lot of uh, Wrigley visits and uh, a lot of fun. But uh, I want to share with you probably one of the greatest memories of my childhood. When, when, you're, when you're in uh, the Chicagoland area and you finally get that chance to, to visit, there's a lot of things that you're excited about. And back in the day, uh, next slide, this, this tower, the Sears Tower, was uh, the tallest in the world, okay? And so there was a lot of hype, right? There was a lot of uh, excitement around visiting the Sears Tower, going up in the Sears Tower, just so we all know where everyone's at. How many of you have been up in the Sears Tower at the top? Okay, so a few of you. The rest of you need to get out, okay? Um, I know you think the arch is tall, and the arch is all well and good. The Sears Tower is better. Anyway, um, so I remember as a small kid uh, going up to the city of Chicago, you know, you can see the Sears Tower from miles and miles away on a non-foggy, cloudy day. And we get out of our car, and we're, we're making our way. We're going to, you know, do the tour. And I don't remember exactly how old I was. But there was this moment where um, I just, I walked up to the Sears Tower. And... You know, from miles and miles away, I mean, it, it kind of feels small. There's a, you know, a little bit of um, not fully grasping uh, its greatness. But as a little kid, I remember putting my hands on the side of this massive structure and looking up. And it, it looked something like this. I'm not saying exactly, but, you know, this is the Sears Tower, so... It would have felt like that as a kid. And it's very vivid in my memory, the thing that I felt. Uh, What I felt was very small. Uh, What I felt was this, uh, we could even say this sense of awe. There was something that overwhelmed me. And again, it's weird to say it as a small kid. I just, I remember just like taking it in. And then as I've grown older... I do the same thing at large structures. I've done it to the arch. I've kind of, you know, like went up and just put my hands on it and stood back and tried to get perspective on this immense structure. It's crazy how powerful awing something is. Um, So I'm just going to, as Israel has made tremendous conquest uh, throughout the whole land of Canaan, And as we've seen a ton of people die, we've seen a ton of carnage, we've seen a ton of death in the first 10 chapters of Joshua. As I was studying this particular chapter, chapter 11, something happened in me like this. And um, so I am super, super soft tonight uh, in my heart, softened heart. Um, I can't 
uh, fabricate uh, what I experienced in studying for this passage. But what I do want to do with the Holy Spirit's guidance tonight is bring you into what God has done in this passage. And so, again, I can't make any of you encounter the Lord. I, uh, I'm not a soothsayer of God's presence. But if you don't mind, I've been super impacted by this text. And I'm praying that tonight all of us will be as well. Is that cool? So I want to pray for us. We'll ask God to lead us, and we'll see where he and his goodness takes us. Uh, so, Father... Uh, Thank you for the truth of your word. Uh, Thank you that we don't have to rest on my ideas tonight. Or we don't have to grasp at some relative uh, idealism. I'm thankful tonight that we just get to rest in you. So I pray, Lord, that that's what we'll do that each of us in our own situations and circumstances and scenarios would rest in you tonight. In your great name, amen. Uh, So uh, if you're just joining us, you might be a little bit scared. Please don't be. Um, We're just very honest uh, here. And last week we saw, next slide, we saw this crazy path of destruction. You see, what's been happening is God has commanded Joshua to lead the Israelites into this land that he promised them. And part of what's standing in their way are many kings and cities. Early on in our study, we saw Joshua and the Israelites take out Jericho. We then saw them take out Ai. We then saw a treaty with the Gibeonites. And last week, we saw tremendous warfare in all of these kingdoms. Israel wiped them all out. And and then, next slide, something transitions. Something happens. All of a sudden, they leave from this Gilgal camp that they've been centered at for so long. And tonight, uh, they head north to uh, Hazor. And what I've done is I've put the, the whole text we'll be studying tonight on a, on a piece of paper that's in front of you. Uh, I know uh, it's Bible-sized, okay? So for some of you, that may be difficult to read. The text will be on the screen as well to help. But that's going to come in handy later on in the evening. So if you get out that... Um, that handout, open your Bibles or look on the screens. Let's look at all here of chapter 11 as this conquest moves north. Here we go. Let's start in Joshua chapter 11, verse 1. When you guys are there, say I'm there. Here we go. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he heard of the southern conquest, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, And to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, verse 2, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Kinneroth, and in the lowland, and in the Naphthador on the west. Verse 3, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah, the king of Hazor, whose name is Jabin. And so the first question that I want to wrestle with is, who is Jabin? First of all, like the pharaohs of Egypt, Jabin is a term given to the kings. And so in historical evidence, we see many Jabins in this uh, really powerful city of Hazor. 
Uh, this is going to be a key, component, uh, a key component of tonight's study because all of the southern kings, all of the conquests that we've seen so far, pale in comparison to the strength of this brand new now army. The king of Hazor, Jabin, is going to uh, usher, just like the southern king did, all of these kings together in hopes that maybe they can conquer them together. Now, thankfully we have a lot of archaeological evidence of where Hazor was, so I want to show you a few pictures uh, that will help you get a grasp of this. This is one of the uh, archaeologicalized, is that a word, Jared? Archaeologicalized? Not a word, thank you. Okay. This is where some archaeolog- uh, archaeologists have done some work. It's, it sits on uh, many, many acres, does Hazor, and it sits up. I'm going to show you the elevation here in a second. Next slide, this will show you some better perspective. So that whole lift there is this very, very fortified city. By all estimations and by several uh, historians, it was stronger than that of Jericho uh, by fortification as well. Next slide, this shows you just the, the, the depth or the, uh, the steepness, if you will, of the walls. So the king of Jabin, even living in this fortified city, uh, the king of Hazor, even having uh, these resources, he calls together all these other kings. Verse 4, and they came out, look at this, all of these kings, with all of their troops, a great, what's the word there? A great horde. Uh, Some of you guys who have seen Gladiator, uh, that word just resonates in my mind as I'm remembering the first Gladiator battle. A great horde. In number like the sand that is on the seashore, and very many horses and chariots. Well, the thing about Hazor, listen to this, is it was a part of a great north-south trade route. And so many believe, and certainly I would agree, that the trade route allowed for Hazor to collect even some of the Egyptian chariots. This is the first time that the nation of Israel will go against chariots and horses. And also, this is the first time in any of the battles in all of Joshua that we've seen that the number of the opposing army is like the sand on the seashore. My guess is many of you have been to the beach before. I'm not so sure that you try to count the sand, but if you did, it would be a very interesting experiment, right? Even if you just took like one foot by one square foot and you put all the, the little sand pellets, what do they call them, sand pellets, sand grains, okay, if you put them all out there, Oh, for two, you put them all out there and you started numbering them one by one, it would, it would be a very tumultuous task, right? Because like to, to say that something is as much as the sand on the seashore, it, it gives us an idea. So this is their greatest task, which makes verse 5 all the more incredible. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Meram to fight against Israel. On your map, on your handout, you can see where that is. Uh, what we've just watched and witnessed is the nation of Israel, not battle weary, has taken out, despite a tremendous traveling, tons of southern kings and cities and villages, but now their task is tremendous. Verse 6 Insane. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them. Let's read that again, shall we? For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them. We just watched that one of the battles in the southern campaign took two days. One. 
And now we're getting ready to see that all of this entire, as the scripture describes, horde is all going to be taken over and slain in one day. God says, in one day, it's all going to be handed over to you. Look at how verse 6 ends. I will give them all over to you, slain to Israel. And you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. You know what I love here? Can I tell you? God does not stop affirming and reminding Joshua about how he is to not be afraid. And I am so thankful that in studying an entire book, you can sit back and watch now the countless times that God has encouraged his servant Joshua to not be afraid. We sometimes not just grow weary in our circumstances like we talked about last week, we sometimes grow weary in just continuing to hear the the continual, constant, normative commands and encouragements from God. But I'm so thankful that the writer of Joshua here takes note of every single time God speaks to his servant, do not be afraid. Again, Joshua is seasoned. He's an old man. He's seen a lot. Imagine the things this man has witnessed to this point. More death than any of us have ever seen. He's also seen the wilderness wanderings. He watched the disobedience of the nation of Israel. I mean, this dude is seasoned. And yet God continues to say, do not be afraid. Aren't you so thankful that God still speaks through his word and encourages his servants like you and I, to not fear. The scripture says, he has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of sound mind. Are you thankful that we have access to God's word, which is this continual reminder straight from the mouth of God of who he is and what he promises? What I'm saying is, his promises don't get old. They do not get old. So God, please continue just to heap over us the promises of your word. Help us bathe in them. God, I pray that they would never become old to us. Because I'm telling you, if old man Joshua, who's seen what he's seen, needs them, I'm telling you what, you and I need them. We need to know them and believe them and hear them. Don't be afraid. Tomorrow at this time, verse 7, so Joshua and all his warriors, no trepidation, came suddenly against them by the waters of Maram. You can see that on your map. And I love the way the scripture describes, fell upon them. Now in war, if something is going to fall upon something else, it makes the adversary here in a very precarious situation, in one of defeat. They fall upon them. And verse 8, the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, like we saw two battles in verse ten or chapter 10, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Mizpahim and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them, look at this, until he left none remaining. There is zero of this great horde now that is left remaining in verse 9. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. Just as the Lord said to him. As many times as we've seen the promises of God, how about how many times we've seen that language? Just as the Lord had commanded. Precision. Precision in the detail. Precision in the obedience. Such a beautiful, beautiful text. Just as God had commanded them. Look, he also hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Uh, I want to make sure we all understand what hamstringing horses is. I had to look into this. Um, Now, many of us have uh, an Achilles tendon, correct? Okay. One for three. All right. 
and we have an Achilles tendon. Now, if someone were to uh, cut that Achilles, or as you hear in athletes sometimes, that tendon gets severed, it makes you incapable of moving forward. It doesn't, doesn't kill you per se, but the thought here in ancient warfare and hamstringing horses it, is it makes them uh, to, to where they can never fight again. And a big piece of what's happening here in the purifying of the land is God is making sure that no one can come against the nation of Israel. And so Joshua hamstrings the horses. Again, this feels weird to even think about them doing this. But imagine the smoke of the chariots. Once again, Israel experiencing victory. Verse 10, and Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor, this fortified city, on a hill city and struck its king with a sword, a Jabin, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms, a fortified, strong city. And they struck with a sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. Now, there's been a lot of conquest so far. We've only, three, uh, we've only seen three cities burn. Jericho, Ai, and now Hazor burned. So it's pretty incredible that we see some archaeological evidence of the remaining of the city, remaining parts of the city. But just for a second, not Joshua. I just want you to imagine yourself as a warrior. You have traveled a lot. You've seen a lot. You've encountered a lot. You've watched a lot. You've shared in victory a lot. And now it seems like, is there anyone left to fight? And they're like watching the smoke billow from the city. Just put yourself there a little bit in the heat of the day. Blood on your hands. Watching yet another city burn. Verse 12. And all these cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured. And that's right, as we've seen over and over, he struck them with the edge of the sword. Devoting them to destruction just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone that Joshua burned, affirming what we just said. Verse 14. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder, but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. So I just, again, want to make sure we're all seeing this the way that the scripture reads. There is no one here that's surviving. There's been a couple survivors along the way, and those have been those who submitted to the Lord. We've mentioned her over and over and over. Rahab, the prostitute with the name, was saved out of Jericho in her profession of faith. Now, we don't seek and know all of the innards of Rahab's heart, but the evidence shows in the scripture that she was certainly a worshiper of the Lord. And so they burn. Verse 15, just as Uh, The Lord had commanded all of this. And so verse 16, Joshua took all the land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland. Verse 17, from uh, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Belgad and the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Verse 18 says, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Now, what, what happens in verse 16 to 18 is a description of the breadth and the width of the destruction. It lays out the boundaries. We don't know how long these last conquering battles took. 
But we know with precision, with obedience, Joshua goes after all of these cities just as God had commanded, just as Moses had commanded before him. And so verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of who? You guys remember this? Come on. Of Gibeon. Remember this? The treaty. And they took them all in battle. All right. So I'm reading this. I'm studying this. I'm reading all these things again. And I'm like, well, okay. The body, these folks that I love and care for so much, we've certainly been on a journey through Joshua. They too have studied and watched tremendous carnage and death. And they've had to wrestle with all the truth of those things. And then all of a sudden I got to verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. This verse is um, one of those that most Bible studies will leave and flee. Don't want to have to wrestle with this. Don't want to dive into this. Don't want to know the answer. Right? Like some of you are right there. I don't want to know the answer of what it means that it was the Lord who hardened their hearts so that they should come against Israel. And for those of you that know nothing about Matthias, here's what you're going to know and learn. Is we are not going to run from this verse. Just like we haven't run from all of the difficulties of the first 10 plus chapters of Joshua. You see, when I got to this verse, something happened in me. Something that hasn't happened in a long time in my heart. And so the first piece that I was brought to was this isn't the first time in Scripture that we've seen this. Next slide. In Exodus chapter 7, here is God. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So before there was a hardening of the heart in Joshua 11, there was a hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 7, which, by the way, is mentioned in the book of Romans later on. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with God's sovereignty? Now, sovereignty is a a theological word that many folks like to put in certain conversations to sound smart, right? Like, oh, the Lord is so sovereign, right? But if you were to ever pin them down on, hey, what do you mean by sovereign? They would be backpedaling a little bit. Oh, you know, he's like sovereign, he's like sovereign, you know, like he's, he's sovereign, amen, right? In the name, right? Like at the core of Sovereignty is kingship. 
At the core of sovereignty is a Lord over all. Much like in common language, if you heard that an ancient king was sovereign over the land, what did it mean? He was over it all. He was in it all. There would be elements of his direction. And so when we talk about God's sovereignty then, what we're talking about is his kingship and the fact that he's Lord over all. Colossians 1 makes it very, very clear. He was before all and is in all. He holds all things together, Colossians 1 says. That's sovereignty. He holds it all together. And in the old Sunday school song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Come on, just me? Okay. Sorry about you. You guys missed out. Okay. What do we do with sovereignty? What do you do with verse 20? Now, there's a similarity between verse 20 and Pharaoh's example. In both situations, they were already indulging in the darkness of their sin and living as pagans apart from God. Agree? So the scripture doesn't say about Pharaoh or about the Canaanite land that they were living righteously for God, pursuing God, and then all of a sudden God reversed their hearts to hate him. Does anyone see that in the scripture? It's not there. Pharaoh was clearly living for himself, clearly living in his flesh, clearly apart from God, distant from God, worshiping many, many gods in his land. And the Canaanites doing the same thing. I've done a little bit of study on the pagan worship of the Canaanites, even in Hazor. And it was deplorable, the things that they had done. So what we could say about Exodus 7 and Joshua 11 is that God gives them over to the desires, the dark desires of their heart. He hardens their heart so that they will take action in battle against Israel, thus God using it to wipe out the Canaanites. So that's the explanation, but the question is still, what do we do with sovereignty? And even better, why did verse 20 have such an impact on me? We'll get there. Let's finish the text. Verse 21. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities, as we've seen over and over and over. There was a none of the Anakim uh, left in the land of the people of Israel, which I, I didn't have time to do a ton of research here on this particular group of people, except to find out that apparently they were a race of giants. Um, so to say that they were uh, that there was none of them left is uh, some sort of massive accomplishment here. Uh, maybe next week I'll show you a picture or two. Only in Gaza, middle verse 27, in Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. Verse th- uh, 23, and finally. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for a what? What's the word there? Come on. An inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land, whoa, 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 check this out, had what? Rest from war. And so we were like, about time, right? Like, thank the Lord. Are we going to be able to look at something in Joshua right now apart from war? Well, the scripture says there was rest from war. Now, reading this, studying this, looking this over and over and over, 
I want to share with you what God started to do in me. Next slide. On the back of your card, there is a timeline. I know some of you guys really get into timelines, others of you not so much. Um, So just work with me here. Uh, For those of you that are very detailed, there's going to be 14 pieces to this timeline. Okay? So you're going to have to leave some room. Next slide. I'm going to number them first across the bottom just like that. You can go one by one and then at the top we'll list what we're talking about on the timeline. Okay? Try to give enough room for you to jot down if you'd like. But this is what God did in my heart. Let's start here with number one. Our timeline begins in celebrating sovereignty in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when God creates in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, the Hebrew word for God there is Elohim, Father, Son, Spirit. All of who God was, was there. Jesus was there, the Spirit was there, Father God was there. The whole Trinity, God created the heavens and the earth. The second part of our timeline in Genesis chapter 3 is then we see man disobeying God. We see Satan, as we talked about even here last week, coming to Eve and Adam and saying, did God really say? He presents fruit, puts doubts in their mind. They believe the lie of the deceiver like all of us in this room have done. The scripture says he's the father of lies. We are easily deceived. He masks his lies well. And in the garden, all of a sudden, man disobeys God. It then, Romans says, makes everyone after them a sinner. So at the moment you begin to feel self-righteous, you need to read your Bible again. Every single person in the scripture born after Adam and Eve are born into sin. We've said it here a million times. Your kids seem so innocent. Without Christ, they're going to spend an eternity away from him. Their smile seems so pretty. Their laugh seems so cute. Their giggles so luring. But without Christ, my friends, listen. They are headed to an eternity apart from God. That's the, dev- that's the devastation of sin. The third part of our timeline in Genesis 12, hello, all of a sudden, and you can picture now this whole timeline beginning to build. God comes down to Abram. His name's not Abraham yet. Abram is a pagan man from a pagan family in a pagan land. And God all of a sudden says, hey, uh, Abram, you're mine. I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And seriously, like in me, even right now, I can feel the rise of this story, of this 14-part story. As God reaches down to Father Abraham, who, yes, later had many sons. Okay. (laughs) Number four, here we go, the next part. In Genesis 21, at a hundred years old, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Hello, somebody. hundred years old. Because the whole problem was, hey, God, if, you, if you're going to make my name great, uh, I'm, I'm going to need some kids. Okay. Going to need some children here to like, make this thing a dynasty. It seems improbable. All of a sudden, Sarah finds herself pregnant. Uh, Jared, do you know how old Sarah was at the time? Was she 90? Am I getting that right? She was up there as well, okay? So they were both super, super old, all right? 
And all of a sudden, at 100, Isaac is born. Now, why is this significant? Because you can feel the story building. Number five, all of a sudden we see this happen. Next slide, in Exodus 1, the sons of Jacob, recorded by Scripture, who is the son of Isaac, come to where? Come to where? Come on. Egypt, the story builds. And what do they do? That's right. They multiply. Following God's commandments. Be fruitful and multiply. They listen and they listen well. People be multiplying, people be having babies, okay? Then what happens in that multiplication, the scripture notes very, very specifically in Exodus 1, is that they become strong. Pharaoh takes note of this. These Israelites, they're, man, they're they're becoming plentiful. We need to do something about that. And he does. Pharaoh begins to act. And the next piece of our timeline, number six, finds us in Exodus 3, just a couple chapters later, when the miracle baby Moses put in a basket, flowing down the river. You guys have seen Prince of Egypt. 100% biblically accurate. Probably not. God calls Moses to lead his people out of Egyptian slavery. You see what happens? Pharaoh takes action in total, ends up putting the Israelites into 430 years of slavery. Well, what happens in that 430 years of slavery is all of a sudden God comes down just like he had done in Father Abraham and tells Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. It's time. It's time, 430 years plus Jacob, plus Isaac, plus Abraham, and all of a sudden the years are building. But God pulls Moses out and says, you are going to lead this nation out of Egyptian slavery. Number seven on our timeline, we find in Exodus 12, after 10 plagues, the final of which is the Passover, killing all the firstborn in Egypt. Imagine the cries. Pharaoh releases the Israelites. Some of you guys have the let my people go, you know, like the the whole montage of the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. Pharaoh releases them. And when he releases them, as we said, in all estimations, one million plus. Some have said as many as 2.5 million, no less than hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these Israelites are released from Egypt. A bunch of stuff happens from there, but let's skip uh, to number eight here on our timeline in Exodus 20. God then gives the nation of Israel ten commandments. Now, the question is why? Why does God give two tablets to Moses and say, go tell my people all of these commandments? Why does he do this? Because you see, God has an unbelievable way of revealing the power of his sovereignty. And he gives his people these ten commandments to show them that apart from him, they are incapable of obeying. And they proved it well. I mean, these people have now seen an entire sea part. They've watched water come from rocks. They've seen bread and manna come down from the skies and soon they'll be building a golden calf. And soon they'll be creating gods that are convenient for them. And soon, wayward, 
when God has made himself very evident, he gives them the Ten Commandments so that everyone could see that without him, incapable of obeying. Number nine. Then all of a sudden in Exodus 23, this is crazy, crazy moment in scripture. You can check it out later. The conquest and victory over the things that we have just seen and witnessed and learned and studied is promised. It's promise. What I've learned about the Bible is it's one massive promise and one massive promise keeping. Over and over and over, God speaks and it comes true. God promises and it happens. And we see now in Exodus 23, the promise of the very things that we've just been learning. Number 10 on our timeline as we head on down the road in Numbers 13. Hello. And you can feel, I wish we had like some theme music or something right now, right? Like my heart will go on, is playing in the background, right? All of a sudden, Numbers 13 Moses sends spies, and only two believe that they should enter Canaan. What's the first word there? Come on, what's the, what's the, who? Joshua, here he is. You can feel like all of a sudden the score rising and the violins are cranking away, right? And the, the drums are beating. Moses sends some spies into Canaan. Hey, tell us how it looks in there. God has, you know, told us to make some advancement. You guys think we should go? Most of the spies come back and say, no way. The land is too strong. The army's too tough. And only two, Joshua and Caleb, come back. No, we can do this. God said we can do this. It's ours. Let's take it and inhabit it. Number 11 then, we watch the fallout of this. In Numbers 14, God then says, all right, you're not going to go? Guess what? Based on the census, anyone who's 20 years and above is going to die in the wilderness. Only those who are young or to be born will get to share in the inheritance. Now, it was at this point, listen, it was at this point, all of a sudden I'm like starting to see all of these pieces on the timeline come together. And I'm starting to understand the impact of this and all the things that all of these people were released and had every opportunity to share in the obedience of God and the inheritance of the land. And instead, they listened to the wayward spies. They listened to the doubting spies. They they listened to the doubts in their own heart and mind. No, it's not time. It's not for us. And so God makes very, very clear when you doubt me. It comes with tremendous consequence. And I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Our life is such a testimony to that. When you have doubted God, it may not cost you your eternity because you have relationship with Christ. I pray that be so. But when you've doubted God, there's come, it's come with consequence, hasn't it, for some of you? You've listened to the lies. You've been deceived. You've stepped in and you've indulged. And so for you, just like uh, the nation of Israel in this way, 20 and above, it's been met with great harm. Number 12, all of a sudden, Deuteronomy 7, hello. He promised it. In Deuteronomy 7, now God commands it. He commands it to Moses. 
And he says specifically the exact verbiage that we've seen over and over and over in Joshua. Devote it to destruction. Devote it to destruction. Devote it to destruction. God commands the destruction of the Canaanites and to devote it all. Not leave anything breathing. He commands it. And then all of a sudden, as the music builds, number 13, check this out. In Deuteronomy 31, then Joshua is chosen to succeed Moses. This follower of Moses, this right-hand apprentice to Moses, this man that came back and said as a spy that we need to inhabit. Now Joshua is going to take the reins. And then all of a sudden, number 14 ends our timeline. Joshua 1, God tells him, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Mark, what does any of this mean? When I got to verse 20 and I was studying this text, I was overwhelmed with a feeling that I felt when I was a young boy. And it was all under the premise of this truth. Next slide. God's plan of redemption for the nation of Israel was accomplished over hundreds of years. That is celebrating sovereignty. I mean, back at the beginning of sin, God's plan of redemption to grab his people, God's desire to have a people that would be his, where he would be their savior and they would be his people. And then way back when in Genesis 12, he grabs Abram, pagan man, pagan land, and he says, listen, I've got a plan of redemption. I've got a plan. You're, you're going to be my people. And we're going to go on a long journey, but it's going to start right now. Let's go, Abram. But God, I don't have any kids. I know, 100 years old, boom, there's a kid. And all of a sudden, his sons then, uh, later uh, after Isaac, will make up the tribes of Israel. And then all of a sudden, we see this massive slavery piece enter in the timeline. And everyone is wondering, are we still your people? Are you going to do what you told Abraham? Will you accomplish what you told Isaac and Jacob? Are, are you going to do this? Are you really God? You see, the moment I came to is the moment I long for every single one of you to experience right in this precise second. Sitting in that chair of yours right now is you. You've been through a lot. You've seen a lot. You've hurt a lot. You have some great memories. There are sins that you wish you could go back and not do. There's moments that you wish you could relive forever. But sitting in that chair, just you, sitting in that chair, is the representation of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of sovereignty, of kingship, 
of a Lord who would even by his grace, in spite of sin entering the world thousands of years ago, would allow you to sit in this chair right now and hear the message of the gospel that you do not have to live within yourself. Can you just take in the sovereignty of this moment right now? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and there you sit. And here I stand with every opportunity to marvel at what God has done. You see, here's what I've realized. I've realized we're consumed with something. Every single one of us in this room tonight is consumed by something. For a lot of you, it's just yourself. For others of you, it's this stressor right now that's weighing heavy on your shoulders. For some of you, it's this relationship that's causing a ton of pain. You name it, all of us entered in this room consumed by something. You know what I long for? Based on the constant, beautiful sovereignty of God, I long to be consumed with the beauty of worshiping a sovereign king. And I'm not coming to the point as I'm reading through this over and over and over. This is possible. Why? Because of this. Right here. Next slide. What if all of a sudden, what if all of a sudden, all of us tonight just like, just like walked up again? What if tonight like all of a sudden, all of us just made our way again? Like a young kid who hasn't seen some of the things that you've seen. And what if, like the first time, we made our way up to the greatness of God, to His incredible plan of redemption? That he would offer every single person in this room hope and grace and love, even though none of us deserve it. That he would allow Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. He could have grabbed it out of their hands. That he would allow that to happen so that he could show us how much he loves. What if we walked up again like little kids and just looked up and took it in? And got consumed again with the greatness of the God we serve. And not just some list of do's and don'ts. Listen, so many of you right now are utterly consumed with the wrong idea of who God is. You're consumed with religious activity. You're consumed with some list of moral obligations. My friends, there is so much beauty in what God has set up for us. He has set up the opportunity for us to sit back and admire his greatness and there in doing, getting wrapped up in an all-consuming worship of him. And so what if tonight, together, we just walked up again and said, God, Would you show us right now in this moment your greatness? Don't let anyone leave. God, that you would do all of the things you have done that would allow me to sit in this chair right now and hear, and hear with my ears that there is a way out of my sin. That is his sovereign grace. 
The fact that you could call on his name in the scripture says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord even right now will be saved. That's his sovereign grace. So let's stand together, church. The way the psalmist summarized as he was closing up this massive collection of hymns, this massive collection of praise, here is the words that the psalmist put that I long for all of us to hear. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Amen? Great is the Lord. Imagine all of us like looking up. Great are you, Lord. Greatly to be praised. And His greatness, the psalmist says, is unsearchable. It's beyond what I can see. It's way farther than I can understand. His Greatness makes him the sovereign king of the universe. And so maybe then, maybe then, for every single one of us tonight, we will be consumed, not with our sin, not with our trials, not with our circumstance or that relationship, maybe even just right now, every single person in this room who follows the Lord Jesus would just be consumed in the worship of His greatness. So Father, consume us. Consume us like a consuming fire. Wrap yourself around us. God, forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us for taking light what you've done. Forgive us for not seeing, God, the plan of redemption that you've laid out that your son Jesus would allow salvation for those who would call on his name. God, please make us right now in these precious moments worshipers of you as the sovereign king of the universe.